Morning, everyone. If we, have, if we haven't met, my name's Tom Barrett. I'm Assistant Minister here at All Saints. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. For the scriptures that have just been read aloud for us, which we know are powerful and active and which change lives. And so as we ponder them now, please do your work in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you, how do you deal with your failure? With the project deadline that you didn't meet? With the career goal that you have not reached and clearly will not reach? With a parenting aspiration that it is too late to live up to? When the exam mark comes in and it's not what you needed to finish the course? With the friendship that you have damaged beyond repair. What do you do with your failures? There are lots of different options. We can deny and pretend we haven't failed. We can minimise and pretend the failure is only very small. We can rationalise and pretend we had no choice. You can make excuses. You can distract yourself with other things in life. You can crumple in despair. Personality style plays into this a bit. Some people find it easy to shrug off failures that should be taken seriously. Others of us get crushed by failures that really should be shrugged off. On a good day, we might be able to admit our failures, learn from them, grow. But that certainly doesn't happen every time, does it? What do you tend to do with your failure? We might fail in our professional life or in our role as a friend, as a parent, as a child, as a grandparent, as a husband, as a wife. But what about the times when you fail God? The times when you realise that it's been weeks or months since you even acknowledged he was there or gave him any thanks for the things he gives you. The times when you're well aware of the ethical boundaries that he's drawn But temptation comes and you step right over those boundaries. The times when there's an act of kindness that you know he's calling you to, but you decide to prioritise your own comfort instead. The times when you could have stood up and be counted as a follower of Jesus, but instead you shrank back in fear. What do you do with that kind of failure? Today we're going to be thinking about that passage from Mark chapter 14, which was read for us. I think it's page 1450 in the church Bibles. And in this passage we come to a scene where almost every character fails God. Not in some little way, in a major way. When the pressure is on, they crumble in a way they never thought they would. In this passage, everybody fails God except for one person. And that one person is our hope amidst all our failures. Now, in the narrative of the Gospels, for a long time now, Jesus has been telling his disciples that when they get to Jerusalem, he is going to be rejected and suffer and die. And now they've arrived in Jerusalem and Jesus is engaged in a public confrontation with all the religious thought leaders. The tension in the air has been rising and rising. 
Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated the Passover meal where Jesus has spoken to them again about his death. And during that meal, Jesus announced that one of his disciples would betray him. And they were all saddened by this. And each of them said, surely not me. After the meal, Jesus has another somber prediction. It's in today's passage, verse 27, where he says to his disciples, you will all fall away. And again, they protest. Peter, the most hot-headed of the bunch, he says emphatically, even if everyone else disappears, I'll stand with you, Jesus. Jesus says, no, you won't. But Peter insists, yes, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. These disciples are really confident in the strength of their faithfulness to Jesus. But their confidence is misplaced. Jesus knows them better than they know themselves. And by the time the night is out, they will all fail Jesus. In fact, they start to fail him straight away. After the Passover meal, the group heads to a place called Gethsemane. This is basically a a hideout, a place where they might have some temporary safety from the Jerusalem authorities that are after them. Jesus tells the disciples in Gethsemane, sit here while I pray. Because Jesus would quite often withdraw in prayer. Interestingly, this time he invites three disciples to come with him, Peter, James and John. He takes these three disciples to a secluded spot. And verse 34, he asks them to stay and keep watch while he prays. Remember, they're on the run. The authorities are after him. Jesus wants them to keep a lookout. But after an hour, Jesus comes back from praying. Are these disciples keeping watch? No, they're asleep. If an attacker had come along, there's no way they would have sounded the alarm. Jesus says, couldn't you have kept watch for one hour? And he updates his instructions. He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What sort of temptation is he thinking of here? Hold that thought. Jesus always goes off to pray on his own again, but when he returns to the three disciples, they're asleep again because their eyes were heavy, it says. They might have prayed a bit but it hadn't lasted. Now, you and I know how easy it is if you're praying at night in a comfy chair or lying in bed, how easy it is for praying to turn into sleeping. We know it, don't we? But these guys were not at home in a comfy bed. They knew they were in a position of danger. Earlier, they'd promised they were able to die for Jesus, but here they're not even able to stay awake for Jesus. When Jesus comes back, it says they did not know what to say. And you probably know that experience, right? When you're caught in the act or your negligence suddenly comes to light and you're looking around for an explanation, an excuse, justification, but there's nothing. You have nothing to say. Verse 41 shows us this happens a third time. Jesus comes back, finds them snoozing. The disciples are meant to be keeping watch. But now it's Jesus who points out that his betrayer is arriving. So then along comes Judas. With him are a crowd of armed men sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. They couldn't arrest him during the day because the adoring crowds would have put a stop to it. But now Judas has led them to Jesus in an isolated place at night 
so they can do their worst. Jesus is betrayed with a kiss, tied up and arrested. In verse 47, we see a different kind of failure from one disciple. Mark is too polite to name him. It says, one of those standing there drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We see here, you can fail Jesus by betraying him. You can fail Jesus by disowning him. But you can also fail Jesus by sticking up for him in the wrong way. I actually think this is the kind of temptation that Jesus was thinking about when he told them to pray earlier that they would not fall into temptation. Using the tools of violence to defend Jesus, whether that's physical violence, political violence, verbal violence, that too is a failure of faithfulness to Jesus and his agenda. Now, Jesus knows that his arrest is the way things have to be. Verse 49, he says, the scriptures must be fulfilled. And the moment he says that, everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone deserted him and fled. All the disciples, all those who declared their loyalty with such bravado only a couple of hours before, even the one who'd drawn his sword and lashed out now runs off. And Jesus is left on his own. When Judas arrived in verse 43, Mark refers to him as one of the twelve. You and I might naturally think of Judas the betrayer over here and the other eleven sort of good disciples over here, right? But actually his active betrayal and their passive disowning of Jesus are different only in degree. All 12 disciples fail in one way or another. And if you can't see a little bit of yourself in these disciples, I think you should. Because they represent every frail follower of Jesus, which is what you and I are. There are moments when it's easy to speak with bravado, when we're surrounded by like-minded people, easy to puff ourselves up with confidence in the strength of our faithfulness. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here I stand. Jesus is king. But when we're in different circumstances, when we realise the cultural tide is going out, when my circle of friends get fired up by some competing agenda, when my workplace or my uni loudly declares, prophet is king, or sex is king, or personal identity construction is king, it's easy for us to chicken out. It's easy for us to desert Jesus and put a safe distance between him and us. None of us have the strength on our own to remain firm every time our faithfulness is tested. If we are confident in ourselves, our confidence is misplaced. But there is hope. Because in this passage in Mark 14, amidst all the failure, there is one human being who remains faithful to the end. The disciples are not the only ones being tested. Jesus is also being tested here. And for him, things go very differently. Come back with me to verse 33. 
And let's look at what's going on for Jesus in this passage. Verse 33 says Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. Jesus has known for a long time that this is where his journey was leading. But now the hour has drawn near. He's faced with the imminent reality of all the horrors about to unfold in the next 24 hours. The physical torture, the humiliation and the public shame, abandonment by his friends and then abandonment by God himself as Jesus becomes sin for us. That's why he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And this is a dangerous place. This is a dangerous place for Jesus to be for his mission. Here's how John Piper puts it. He says, it is possible to become so sad, so heavy that reality is distorted. The future seems hopeless and action seems impossible. Perhaps you have tasted this. This is not small. Jesus' mission is in jeopardy. He must fight against the immobilizing effects of this horrible weight of sorrow. This is a moment of danger, a moment of profound temptation for Jesus. So what does he do? Firstly, he prays. And what a prayer it is. Jesus speaks to God the Father with family intimacy. He uses the Aramaic word Abba, Father, Dad. And as we read in our second reading in Romans 8, by the Spirit, we too can call out to God as Abba, Father, if our trust is in Jesus. As Jesus continues, he recognises that God is in control of this situation. Everything is possible for you. But that doesn't stop him from voicing his own desires and his own feelings. He doesn't beat around the bush with some verbal fluff. He gives a straight-out request, a demand even, when he says, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. You might ask, what is this cup? And the answer is it's actually a common way that the Bible refers to God's judgment. The cup of God's wrath, the wine of God's anger, they're common phrases in the Old Testament, a bunch of examples on the screen. And you may honestly not like these parts of the Bible that talk about God's wrath, his anger, his fury. You may prefer a God where this distasteful element has been removed. But actually God's anger is a flip side of his love. If you love children, you'll hate child abuse. If you love justice, you'll hate lies. Because God loves his world, he hates the things which damage it. Because God loves human flourishing, he's angry when humans declare independence from our creator and cut ourselves off from the source of life and peace. And every one of us is guilty of that. Deep down, every one of us has failed God in that way. Left to ourselves, each of us is worthy of God's judgment his rightful anger. But so that the human race would not end up wiped out altogether, God had a rescue plan. 
In his love, God sent Jesus as saviour. He sent Jesus to be the perfect human, the one who deserved no judgment at all. God sent him who had no sin to become sin for us, to stand in our place and on the cross to take on himself all the judgment that we deserve so we can be spared. Jesus knows that this is his mission. He knows that that unspeakably awful moment is soon to come. And faced with that horror, he says to God, take this cup from me. But he also says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus actually prays two contradictory things here. He knows that him going to the cross is God's will. That's the plan. But at the same time, he says, I want to be spared this awful experience. Take this cup away. But he also says, never mind what I want. May your will be done. And so when you and I feel conflicting desires, we too should feel free to bring them to God in prayer. He's God. He won't get confused. If we find ourselves feeling a strong aversion to doing what God has called us to, then if we start by telling God how we're feeling, we're following Jesus' example. If God doesn't answer every one of our requests, then we're also in the same boat as Jesus. Jesus was God's perfect son with whom he was well pleased, but his prayer, take this cup away, did not get answered. And so if not all your prayers get answered, it doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Maybe he's answering one of your other bigger and better prayers. As Christians, we recognise that Jesus is 100% divine. We worship him as our God, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, Jesus is also 100% human. He could feel conflicted. He could be overwhelmed. And when he prayed, he wasn't just talking to himself. Here we see Jesus, the human, perfectly committing himself to God's will. Committing himself to playing out God's plan for his world, even in this darkest of moments. After Jesus has prayed and submitted to God's will, he stands up and acts in line with God's will. The mob arrives to arrest him and he surrenders to them, saying the scriptures must be fulfilled. You might remember, way, way back at the very beginning of the Bible, another story about people being tempted in a garden. Does this ring some bells for you? People being tempted in a garden, the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve decided to put their own wills above God's will and the world was ruined. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus puts the Father's will above his own will and salvation is born. Unlike his disciples, unlike every other human, Jesus wins the battle of Gethsemane 
He is the one person in all history who does not fail God. And his faithfulness is our hope amidst our failures. Stand by, I'll find my spot. Yeah, that's where we want to be. You might have noticed that through this narrative, Jesus has rebuked his disciples a few times. He said to them, you guys have got so much to learn. In today's passage, he said, come on, can't you stay awake? He predicts you will all fall away. He rebukes them, but you know what he never does? He never cuts them loose. He never says, that's it, we're done, you've failed, we're finished, you're on your own. And in fact, come back with me to the start of today's passage. Look at verse 28. Straight after his prediction of their failure, there is a promise. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Galilee was the region up north where it had all begun. Where this motley group of fishermen and tax collectors had first noticed Jesus worked out there was something special about him and quit their day jobs to follow him around. Jesus says that after they abandon him to death, the story is not going to be finished. He will rise. He'll meet them back in Galilee. He'll welcome them back to himself. And that's what he does. These cowardly disciples are forgiven and restored. Jesus' sacrificial death covers over even their most tragic lapses of faithfulness. Today's passage also has in it one of those Bible verses that usually raises a giggle. You know the one I'm talking about? Verse 51 says that as the drama came to a head, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I've never seen a children's illustrated Bible that includes that bit. (laughs) Some people reckon that this naked young man was Mark the writer. It's possible, but I don't think it's certain. But this young man gives us a picture of our spiritual state if we separate ourselves from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we are naked, subject to shame and ridicule, But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He clothes us. He calls us back and his perfect faithfulness covers all our failures. So brothers and sisters, when we face times of failure, and that's a when, not an if, isn't it? When we face times of failure, especially failure towards God, let's not try and deny Let's not try to minimise or rationalise or excuse. Let's not just numb ourselves with distractions or crumple in despair. Instead, let's admit our failures, the small and the big. Let's learn to run to Jesus again for cleansing and forgiveness. And let's grow in our awe of his perfect faithfulness, which covers over all our failures.